0: Welcome to Inspire on the Go. This season, we are featuring stories of transformation. Each person has a story, and we want to celebrate what God is doing in the lives of others. As you listen to today's episode, I encourage you to think about your story. How is God working in your life? I promise you, He is on the move. Grab your cup of coffee and enjoy this episode of Inspire on the Go. Hey, sweet friends. It's Andrea. I hope that your day is off to a great start. I am so excited to come to you today with a series from our Thrive Collective. If you were able to be with us at the Arkansas Baptist State Convention for Thrive Collective, you know that we took a deep dive into why we do women's ministry. Why do we do it? What is the end goal? What is our mindset? It's so important for us to think about the why. And today we're going to talk about um, creating discipleship ministry. Our sweet friend, Lori McDaniel, is with us. She's going to be really helping us to think strategically, biblically, uh, as we plan women's ministry and as we evaluate women's ministry. So I want you to get out your notebook, get out your pen, be ready to take notes and to really consider why we do what we do. So enjoy this episode from Thrive Collective with Lori McDaniel.
1: I don't know where you came from. I can tell you where I just came from. So I left yesterday afternoon, but I left in a mad dash like the entire morning had been a dead sprint to get all of these things done. So that was helping my daughter with her grandchildren or was packing up some boxes because we're getting ready to move. Or it was talking with a church member whose husband just got airlifted um, to another hospital outside of Northwest Arkansas. So all of these things are happening, but I'm also like looking at the watch, like I've got to get on the road and get to Little Rock because Sherry and I are supposed to have dinner at 5.30. And so, I finally, I get in my car. I'm driving down the road. I've gone about 40 minutes, and my husband texts me. And he says, so, did you mean to leave your clothes at home? (laughs) Not kidding. I was like, you're kidding me. So, in all of his sweetness, he says, hey, I'll meet you halfway. So, I turn around, and I go back, and I get my clothes. And finally, Sherry and I, we meet up. We have dinner. I go back to my hotel, exhausted, and I think, okay, tomorrow's a new day. Right? And so I get up this morning, and I go to look at my notes that I keep in something that I can't explain, but it's called the cloud. So it sounds really simple, but it's very complicated. And they won't download to my iPad, which is where I normally teach from. So now I'm like trying to go through, trying to think, what was I teaching today? I can't. I'm too old to remember these things off the top of my head. Like, I need them in black and white. And so I think, okay, you know what? Forget it. I'm just going to pray. I'm going to go take a shower. I get in the shower and I'm at a hotel which you would expect to have hot water. And for some reason, it's like just a notch above cold. So there's like warm, it's not even there. It's like just a notch above cold. And I don't have time to talk to the hotel people. They're going to make me switch rooms in order just to have a hot shower. So I take a cold shower. And so, I, are you proud of me? I don't know
0: that. <laughs> So
1: I take a shower, and when I go in to look at the mirror, I've got a zit on my face, even though I'm 54. I open up my bag. I realize I've forgotten my hairspray, and I'm like, well, just forget it. Because we've got to talk about discipleship today. And you know what my first point on discipleship is? I actually remembered this one. Here it is. Every day with Jesus is a discipleship lab where you are invited to learn and to unlearn rhythms in your own heart. Mm -hmm. So while we're talking about your church and while we're talking about people you've built relationships with and while we're talking about people you need to build relationships with, ladies, we've got to first bring it down. That every day in our own individual lives is a discipleship lab where we are invited to learn and we are invited to unlearn Rhythms in our own heart. We're going to look at how Jesus did this with his disciples here in just a moment. But here's the thing, and I think it's going to require us to let go of some things. Because what we're asking of you is not to think the same way that you've always thought. Now, we're not saying don't think biblical, but what we are saying is, hey, look, we're in a different paradigm today in the American culture and in the American church. And you know what? Quite frankly, just to, to get to the point, we are not in a healthy way, making disciples that are reproducing disciples. We're not. So what's got to change? The people that we're trying to reach or the people sitting in the church, which is you and which is me. So there's some things that we've got to shift our worldview and allow God to teach us for us to learn and to unlearn when my boys um were young we have i have a daughter and then we have two boys who are having grandchildren like they're multiplying like rabbits i can't keep up like who's pregnant next like we literally have four under the age of two and a half and one on the way so but i know i'm exhausted you see why now and so um when my boys though were younger i can remember like they could pick up a stick in the backyard and what would they do with that stick like, they could be like fighting off a dragon or maybe it's a lightsaber, you know, and they're demolishing the enemy or they're a pirate on a ship or they're using it to catapult themselves into something, right? But that same stick, if they had to throw that stick down, I could look out the back in the backyard a few hours later, now that stick, the dog's chewing on it. Mm-hmm. Like that stick that was once a sword is now simply a chew toy. Let's wait until that evening when my husband comes home and he's mowing the yard and what he don't that stick. He's picked it up and he's put it over where the firewood because now it's kindling. Everybody is looking at the stick in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when Moses had an encounter with God in a burning bush? And God says to Moses, Moses, you're going to deliver. You're going to lead my people. Deliver my people out of Egypt. And what does Moses do? basically argues with God debates him right and so as this debate session is going on God asks Moses Moses what is that in your hand and Moses says it's a it's a staff or in my translation I say it's nothing but a stick people okay but it's a staff okay and what does he ask him to do throw it down and when he throws it down what happens to the stick turns into a snake and then God says, Moses, pick up the snake. Now, this isn't necessarily the biblical translation of it, but I think Moses was like, what? <laughs> like, no, right? But eventually he, like, reaches down, and picks up the snake, and it becomes a, a stick. What changed? Was it Moses' view of the stick? Or was it Moses' view of God? Hmm. That's what I really want us to hang on today. So while there are going to be some things, we're going to use flip charts and the whole whiteboards and the whole thing, right? And there's some things that I really want to give you, some tools that I hope will help you practically. I want everything that we do to be based biblically. Because everything that you are doing as a leader in your church, or maybe, maybe you don't even look at yourself as a leader. But I promise you, draw a circle around you. You've got a circle of influence of people and whom are watching you. And we want the Bible to be the centrality of all that we do. Mm -hmm. We're going to be looking at a passage of scripture um, that you're going to be incredibly familiar with. It's found in John chapter 4. We often call this chapter the woman at the well. And often when we teach it or talk about it, we actually talk about the woman, especially in women's ministry circles, because we can really identify with her, her past, she's got a story, her fears, she's got a little bit of religion, but not too much to know Jesus. Like, we can really identify with the woman at the well, and while we are going to look at her in just kind of a bleep of our session today, we're going to hang out on the edges somewhat of this passage where Jesus is taking these disciples, introducing them into a new path in this everyday discipleship lab. And we're going to see through their eyes what he is teaching them and how he is crafting them to be the kind of leader that he needs them to be. Because if you notice this, Jesus had this small group of people that he discipled. And when he left, when he died and rose again and ascended to heaven, the movement didn't fall apart. It multiplied, and it continued. And so I want us to look at these guys, and here's why. One of my favorite verses is in Mark 3.14, and it says this, that Jesus chose them, in some translations it says he appointed them to be apostles. So Jesus chose them, or you could say he called them, however you want to say it, to be with them, or in other words, to be close to them, Why? So that he could send them out to preach. Like, literally, it's one of those verses that we probably read it and then, like, skim right over it. Jesus appointed the twelve, so he could be with them, so he could send them out to preach, and then we just continue right on. But we miss the density in those words that Jesus himself, he chose, like he handpicked, hey, Come and be with me. Be close to me. I'm going to be close to you. But he had a purpose in doing that so that ultimately he could send them out to multiply this movement that Jesus was all about. God's kingdom and his name and his glory being multiplied in all the earth. So Jesus did a lot more than simply just teaching the scriptures or teaching about the kingdom of God. He initiated a personal relationship with each of the people that he chose to disciple, and in doing so, it wasn't that he just sat down in circles with them and had Bible studies. Although they did look at the scriptures, it would have been the Old Testament. Helps if my Bible's not upside down. <laughs> it would have been the Old Testament. But it was more than just that. He instigated learning opportunities. And for three years invited them into his everyday life. He needed them to see that they were a part of something that was so much bigger than them. What they are part of, ladies, is the very same thing that we are part of today. So I want us to begin reading in John chapter four, verse one. Again, I know you're familiar with it. Bring it up on your phone if you don't have your Bible. Look on with somebody. I'll try to read slow enough that if you don't have either one of those, that at least you can absorb what the Scripture is saying. It says this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was the sixth hour. Now, these first six verses almost just feel like introductory commentary, but there's really a lot here that we cannot miss. (laughs) One of the things I really want to point out to you is this phrase in verse 4 that says this. He had to pass through. The translation here is not a casual, huh, this could be a different path we could take. Like, this was a divine compulsion. Jesus had a moral obligation. Jesus was almost like this constrained duty, this burden within him, that there was a different path, and on that path were people that needed to hear. But who has he got with him? Jesus. He's got the disciples with him, right? It doesn't say that in the verse, first six verses. So in some sense, if we're not careful, we will almost miss it. We don't see it till later on. When he's there at the well, and it says that the disciples had gone on to get food. But here's what I want to do. I don't want to read into scripture at all. But I do want you to think about this. What were the disciples thinking? Like, what was the conversation that they were having going through Samaria? Because you know this... Just from probably your experience in church and so forth, that Samaritans and Jews, like, you can't even hardly say those words in the same sentence. This wasn't just a casual playground, you won't be my friend, dislike that they had for one another. Like, this is generations and history of disdain and tension. If we go to 2 Kings, we see how this plays out. Like, it tells us, Scripture interprets Scripture. And in the 2 Kings, it tells us, Why there is such this animosity. So think of it like this. So you've got David, who had a whole heart following after God. Then you've got his son, Solomon, who had about a half heart following after God. And then you've got Rehoboam, Solomon's son, who had absolutely no heart to follow after God. And the kingdom divides. But when the kingdom divides, what happens is that Israel is up here to the north and Judea is down here to the south. So you've got Jerusalem and Samaria is up here and Galilee is up here. So almost think of it like they're stacked on top of each other. So when the kingdom divides, the Syrians come in, they move some of the Israelites over to Assyria and they bring in people from other nations. Now you've got intermarriages, you've got mixed races who are worshiping other gods, and we'll just shortcut it right there. They can't stand one another. And so Jesus says, we're going to go this way. Can you imagine what the disciples are thinking? Like, the animosity had even mixed into their religious belief system. So they would literally go out of the way in order to get to Galilee. But Jesus is saying, nope, we're going to go straight through. And here's the question I want to ask you is this, is why? Why? Here, I'm going to tell you why is because Jesus kept the end in mind. He knew that what he was about was a part of a bigger picture, and he was inviting his disciples to be a part of this big picture. And so every day is a discipleship lab where Jesus intends for us to learn and to unlearn some of the rhythms that we have within our own heart. So here's what I want to do. If I were to ask you what the big picture is, like, just the scope of the Bible, you know, could you just do it? And I want to give you just a tool. And I'm going to do it really quickly up here on the board. You can take a picture of it. You can write it down. I'm not trying to just fly through it because it's unimportant, but because so many tools that I want to give you to take back to use with your own women. But we first have to understand the why. Why is it that Jesus is doing this? It's because there's a bigger picture at play. There's because he has an in aim in mind. And so here's what I do is I want to put up a puzzle. Now, I'll tell you this, I've never ever worked a puzzle without doing three things. One, looking at the picture in the box. Does anybody like try to put the puzzle together without looking at the picture of the box? Please say. You know, because that would really be, talk about nerves. I look at the picture in the box and then I get all the edges out. Right? And I build the frame. And you know what I do the third thing? I look at the picture on the box. And the fourth thing, what are you doing? Looking at the picture on the box. And then you're picking up another piece and you're like looking at what you put together and going, where did And you're looking at the picture on the box, right? And so that's how I want you to, in some sense, like imagine God's story or the Bible itself. And so here's what I want to do. I want to start over here and let's just call this creation. And again, we're going to fly through all of this. But it says this in Isaiah. Do you know why you're created? It says in Isaiah that you were created for God's glory. Or in Colossians, he says that everything that was created was created by him and it was created for him. So in other words, you were created for God's glory. But what happened when sin came in was a crisis. And we were separated, it says in Romans, from God's glory. But even then, God made a promise that he went through Eve's seed, that that seed would be bruised by the enemy, but that seed would also crush the enemy. But years go by, and sin multiplies, and God is grieved that he even created man and woman. And so he sends a flood upon the earth. Except for one family, Noah and his family, who eventually God tells them, like he told Adam and Eve, to multiply and fill the earth. But years go by, and when we get to Genesis chapter 11, it says that there was a group of people who said, Let's come together. And they all had one language— and let's come together, let's build a tower so that we will not be scattered. Complete opposite of what God said to build the earth. So we will not be scattered. And it says this, let's make a name for ourselves. So what's taking place just in the first 2,000 years of history is that God created for his glory. We sinned and fell short of his glory. And people even continued. When God said to multiply, they want to stay together. When God says it's about my name, we want to make a name for ourselves. But God chooses one man named Abraham, and he creates a covenant. And he says that through you and all your descendants, that all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has a son named who? And 11 others, right? But Joseph is the favorite. So sometimes when we think it's like the eleven who. <laughs> and with all of these, God reiterated his covenant that through you, all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, after several hundred years goes by, Joseph. Sorry, I didn't write Joseph. The Israelites end up in captivity in Egypt. Remember? And we just talked about Moses. Moses. God sends Moses to deliver the Israelites out. And you know every time that he sends a plague, when you go to the book of Exodus, it says this. It says that God sent the frogs, and he took the frogs away so that they would know that I am the Lord. Or he sent the flies, and he would take them away. Why does it say that? So that they would know that I am the Lord and it continues and it continues and it continues. He even says that he raised up Pharaoh so that God would get the glory. And so the Israelites come out of captivity and because of their sin though, they're now wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. But after a new generation is what is raised up, God sends Joseph, or sorry, Joshua to lead them into the promised land. They go in and they conquer the land of Canaan. But you know what's really interesting is when they get to the Jordan River, which is completely flooded, it says this, that God made the floodwaters to dry up. Why is that? So they wouldn't get their chacos wet? <laughs> it says this, so that the nations would know that there is a God in Israel. So they go into the land of Canaan, and we have this period now, which we call Judges. And for 300 years, they would follow after God, they wouldn't follow after God. They would raise, they, a new judge would come, they would follow after God, they wouldn't follow after God. And this kind of rhythm just completely continued. until so God raises up a king, David, who was a man after God's own heart. And we see the kingdom of Israel now flourishing. We talked about Solomon. We talked about Rehoboam. And then we see this. We see that the kingdom divides. But up here, where David is king, right here, do you remember when he goes to fight Goliath? And he says, I'm going to cut off your head. This was my boy's favorite story. (laughs) I'm going to cut off your head. Do you know why he said that? that same sentence says, I'm going to cut off your head. So that the nations will know that there is a God in Israel. Even David prayed. He said, look, make your face to shine upon us and bless us, Lord. Why? So that the nations will know, right? And so it continues and it continues and it continues on. And so the kingdom divides. Israel goes to the north. Judah goes to the south. And while they are in captivity, God says this. He says, look, I am going to make you a light. To the Gentiles. And so even in a moment of captivity, God is still working for his name and glory. He says, I'm going to bring you back out of, and I'm going to bring you back together. But it's not for your sake, but for the sake of my name. And so we will call this the coming home. Then we have this period where it's like silent. We have nothing that gives us any biblical history nothing that gives us any acting of God, but we see the Greeks come in and the Romans come in until one night, a baby is born, Jesus Christ, who had power over all the demons, who had power to the sickness, who had power to conquer death, who said this, I have glorified your name, having done the work that you did." So, even Jesus Christ himself was about one thing. He told his disciples this. He said, Listen, before he ascended into heaven, he said that this message, forgiveness of sins and repentance, will be proclaimed to all nations, and then the end will come. So, even Jesus knew the big picture. Well, then the church is born. When Peter and John, they go to the temple and they preach and they they tell a man who who is healed. And the people are all like, how did this man become healed? And they're preaching the gospel. They say this, that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And the church is born. The Holy Spirit comes. (laughs) you're here I'm not just telling you a soundbite version of children's stories that we teach in Sunday school class like this is what we're a part of we are a part of a bigger story and there is a time when Jesus will come again and what will we be doing in heaven But all nations and all tribes will be giving glory to God and lifting up and exalting his name. You want to know what we're a part of? This is what we're a part of. Why are we making disciples? Because this, we are a part of a bigger picture that is immeasurable, and it is biblical, and it is critical, and it is radical, but it is possible, and it is historical, and it is eternal. Mm-hmm. That is what we are a part of. So even Jesus knew it was for the sake of... His name and his glory. So, why do I say all that here to get in John chapter or chapter four, the first few verses? Because when Jesus is taking his disciples on this path that he must go through, he's got a bigger picture in mind. He needs his disciples to learn. He needs his disciples to unlearn. And so he is disrupting their normal path and implementing. A strategic one. When you are thinking through the people that you are discipling, when you are thinking through how you're even going to lead your women's ministry, and all of the things that you could possibly do from scrapbook nights to progressive dinners to all the video Bible studies, here's what I want you to think. What is the aim? What's the aim? We're aiming at God's glory and God's name, right? How are we going to make this in all the earth? By making disciples? Jesus said to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. So all the things that you're doing out here, I'm just going to write activity, and you can feel in what it might be out here. Activity. Is it hitting the aim? Or... Is it just peripheral activity that creates busyness, but is not advancing the kingdom of God by creating disciples that are multiplying and reproducing more disciples? And it's not necessarily that these activities are inherently bad. It's simply that they aren't hitting the target. I'm afraid that a lot of women's ministries operate the way that I used to function, where I would see a church and I think, "That is a great idea. We could do that at our church." I love that. I wonder how, how can we get the younger people to come? I mean, if we did that, like that church over in that state did that activity, then maybe that's what it would be, right? And so we begin to think like that. And so what we begin to do is we begin to plan this activity or we begin to plan that activity with no focus on the end aim. And if we're not careful at the end, we step back and we begin, like I did in my own ministry, and begin to go, what? What are we doing this happened when we had been doing Bible study every semester, but you take a break in the summer, right? Because, I don't know, maybe I'm grow spiritual in the summer. But we would just do it in the spring and the fall. And I began to notice that every summer the ladies would say, so what's the next Bible study going to be? Mm-hmm. And here's the thing, though. Listen, be very careful, because if I measured it this way, in the fall, we might have this many sign up and be participate in Bible study. In the spring, we would have this many sign up and participate in the Bible study. In the next fall, we would have this many. And like our, we were growing numerically, but I began to notice that the women that I was leading in my church were not personally owning their own spiritual development or able to feed and teach yes. others. When they began asking me, when's the next Bible study? Here's what I began asking. So what are you doing right now? And you know what the answer was? Nothing. Nothing. So I disrupted the path that we were on, and I began to take our women down a different path, and we started small. It was almost like we were starting all over again. All right, let's pick up with our story
0: here. You're good. Oh, heck. You're good. Just keep going. Can I say that?
1: <laughs> I want you to see this that as Jesus is taking his disciples, he has completely disrupted their path. He has completely disrupted their thinking. This wasn't just an external disdain, this was something in the heart. So for him to lead them to this path through Samaria, this was a big deal. Mm-hmm. They were having to unlearn. They were having to dismantle some religious scaffolding that had been propping up everything that they had been thinking. And if I can just be very blunt, because I'm going to blame it on time, we need the same thing to happen in our churches. And since I'm talking to a group of women, I'm just Mm going to say, let it begin with us. Mm -hmm. Don't do this, as we're continuing on, don't do this and think, well, my church or my pastor isn't, and fill in the blank. Or if you're not the women's ministry leader, say, well, my women's ministry isn't, leader isn't, and fill in the blank. And dismiss yourself completely from the equation. Because this discipleship thing we think of as a programmatic for the spiritually elite kind of thing. And I want to tell you right now that Jesus has put you in places, strategically taking you down paths with people in those paths that he desires for you to initiate. Hey, come with me. Be close to me. Let's learn together why. So that eventually, now they're going out and multiplying. So you don't have to have someone to create a program for you to do it. Ladies, simply begin by asking three, asking four, asking five ladies to join you in reading the word of God. I'm trying I'm trying to figure out what I want to pick up and skip.
0: You don't have to. Just keep going.
1: Let's, uh, let, me, let me say this. As, uh, Jesus is now in Samaria. Let's pick up in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Where were the disciples? For they had gone away into the city to buy food. So the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Here's the thing Jesus had disrupted the disciples' path, but now he is disrupting and interrupting her path. She wasn't pursuing Jesus, she didn't go to the well. For something of eternal substance. She just came for temporal satisfaction. But she, he, Jesus is now, and you know how the conversation goes, Jesus is now instigating a conversation with her that he's going to rearrange the landscape of everything that she has now been thinking. Five times she argues with Jesus, and each time, Jesus is right there with her. And she says, how is it that you are a Jewish Samaritan, right? Like, she's debating him. And even the way that this is phrased, it's almost phrased, that we would even drink out of the same dish. Like, we don't do that. But Jesus tracks with her every step of the way. He converts this conversation that he has with this woman to a spiritual conversation. No longer is it just simply about the surface stuff about water. He's converting it to a gospel conversation. Conversation when he says, if you knew, in verse 10, the gift of God, if you knew it is this saying do you give me a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And what does she do? She debates him again. Oh, you've got nothing to even draw water with. And it continues, and Jesus continues with the intrigue and says, look, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirsty again. What does the woman say? I want this water. Right? So he has caused the intrigue. He has taken a surface casual conversation and he has flipped it to a gospel conversation. Here's what I want to know. Because what's about to happen here is this woman's life is about to be changed. But he knows so much about her. And so what I want to do is I'm going to, pay, uh, yeah. to I'm going to ignore these on the floor. He knows everything about her. And yeah, you can say, well, he's Jesus. Of course he does, right? Here's the question I want to ask you. Who is it that you are reaching? Can everybody see? Who is it that you're reaching? Who's coming to your Bible study? I want you to put a label on it. Like, think about it for a minute. Is it the older generation? Is it the younger generation? Is it those who have been in church for a really long time? Is it not people who are nominal like they've been in church forever but they don't really know anything about the Bible? Like who is it that you are reaching? Can you put a label on that group? And let me ask you this do you know what their needs are? Can you get past the surface conversations with them, allowing the scripture to guide you? Can you listen and say, well, this person, I know these are her needs. And this other person, I know this is who they're needs. Because that's what we see Jesus do. We see him taking surface things and converting them into gospel kinds of opportunities. So who is it that your women's ministry is reaching? And is it always the same people all the time? Here's my second question. Who are these people discipling? Like, can you take and draw a thread and say, well, this person is now discipling over here And this person is now discipling this one. And this person is discipling this one. Because 10 years from now, we ought to be able to go, and this person is discipling these. And this person is discipling these. And this person is discipling these. But if we look at this and we're looking at the people, the sheep in the corral in our own church, and all we're doing is moving the sheep from one corral to another, we're not reproducing sheep. And so we've got to stop and ask some really hard questions. They're not complicated questions. They're just hard to answer. But it's going to require, require some humility. It's going to require some honesty. So who are you reaching? Do you, do you even know who they are? Like, Do you know who their needs? So when Mike and I, we were missionaries, we had to understand the culture. We had to know the language. We had to know the way people thought. Why? So you can contextualize the gospel. You can speak it in a way that could be heard and ultimately received. So who is it you're reaching? Are they discipling others? If not, then you have to ask this question. Why? Why? Followed by what needs to change? What needs to change? As Jesus goes on having this conversation, It even flips to her religion, what she really believes. You know, I know that there's a prophet. He's going to tell us all of these things until Jesus finally reveals and he says, I'm the woman. Right? And what does she do? She runs back to her village. About that time, the disciples are coming up on the scene. And this is absolutely my favorite part of the entire story. It says this. Just then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman but no one said anything. Like I could just imagine the jaws are dropped, they're dumbfounded, they're speechless. Nobody said, "What do you seek?" or "Why are you talking with her?" Verse twenty-eight. So the woman left her jar, went away into town, and said, "Come and see the man who told me everything I ever did." Can this man be the Christ? And they went out of town, ta- and the whole town was coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him to do what we all do when we feel uncomfortable—we don't know what to talk about. We go to food. <laughs> Has anyone brought him something to eat? Because they're urging him to eat. And what is he saying? He's saying, I have food that you do not know of. Don't lose sight. Yes, the woman, is her story and all that is taking place, but don't lose sight of the experience of the disciples here. Because this is a whole new paradigm for them. And what Jesus is trying to get them is this. Stop focusing much on that which matters the least, which at that moment was food, and start focusing much on that which matters the most, which was this woman who is now going back to her village. He then continues on, and he begins to give these proverbs, and he says to them, uh, "Let me see what uh, passage is found." And he says this in, in thirty-five. He said, "Do not say that there are four months and then comes to harvest." It's a proverb. Kind of like we would say the early bird is the worm. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white for harvest. Already one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I love this. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into that labor. In other words, boys, sit down. You got a front row seat. Look up. See the harvest? I believe that the harvest that they were seeing were likely the townspeople that says that were coming toward them. And he's saying, Look, you're about to reap, you're about to participate that which you didn't sow. We are a part of a story that other people have participated in. So how did you come to know Christ? Someone told you. Well, who told them? And who told them? And who was it that told them? But let me ask you even a harder question. Who is it that you are now telling? What I love about this story and the woman is that the story didn't stay at the well. Jesus became her lead story. It wasn't about her past. Yeah, meet the man who told me everything i ever done. Her past was a springboard to him. But she became the lead, Jesus became the lead story. And she goes back to the village telling, hey, come, come, come meet the man, come meet the man. The women that you are teaching, the women that you are discipling, when you're gathering together in groups, when they're going out with their friends, do you know what story they're telling? Do they know how to tell a story? Do they know how to sit with a woman over coffee like Jesus was sitting with a woman at a well? And to be able to convert a surface conversation to a gospel one? I was taught several years ago How to convert the gospel or a conversation into a gospel conversation in about 30 seconds. Using your own story. Here's the thing when I say use your own story immediately, meaning if you're going to go back to, uh, well, when I was eight (laughs) and I was at (laughs) Siloam Baptist Camp and my friends, we were. Throwing rocks in a creek. And, and like, that's, that is where you go. But here's what I want to know and why I started at the beginning with every day as a discipleship lab where Jesus is teaching us things that we need to learn, things that we need to unlearn, is because that's where you start. So a personal example. A um, month ago, I was struggling with depression. But it's not like one of those things that you, like, hang a shingle, like, tag around you, and you walk around going, I'm depressed, you know. You're meeting with people, especially when you're a leader. You're meeting with people, and you're putting it aside, usually, and you're listening to them and their story. But as I would, I began to realize, you know what, Kim and I could be sitting down, we could be having coffee, and all I had to do was ask her some questions, like, "What's going on in your life?" She'd be telling me about all the crazy. So, how are you handling with all the crazy? Like, like, Isn't is it, it? hard? So what do you do when it's hard? Like, you're getting a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper. Like, Jesus had the conversation on the surface and then went deeper and then went deeper to even her sexual relationships. And so Kim may be telling me about, I don't know, how hard it is. And we don't have the same circumstances, but, man, the emotions and the thoughts and. We pretty much all kind of battle the same things. And so I could simply just say to Kim, man, Kim, this is really tough. You know, I've been going through a hard season myself, struggling with depression. And still, like every day, I'm still attempting to find time to meet with God in Scripture. I read this verse today. It said, bring my soul out of prison, that I may give praise to his name. Mm -hmm. Do you have a story like that? Allow your women to get into the scripture, to know that they're a part of the bigger story. Teach them how to then begin to identify people around them, including the ones that aren't on the path that we normally take. So who are you not reaching? And teach them, equip them in a fresh way. The Roman road is great. All of the evangelism tools are awesome. People want real life people and real stories that they can identify. And they want to know that this thing that you're reading right here, this book that you talk about at your church all the time, that they're never going to dare to come to, they want to know that it's really real. Does it really work for you? So teach your women how to convert that gospel conversation. It can be anything. It could be marriage. It could be divorce. It could be parenting. Do you have a story like that? I've experienced this and this and this. Do you have a story like that? You see what just happened is you've gone from this everyday discipleship lab. Jesus is teaching you all these things. And you're beginning to think differently. He's disrupting the path in which you normally travel. He's causing you to realize and open your eyes to things which matter the most because we are often concerned the most with things that matter the least. He desires for you to multiply disciples or multiplying disciples, not just reteaching the sheep by circling them in the corral. (laughs) The best way to reach the people that you're not currently reaching is by these people right here. Like, who are you discipling? Those are the people they are going to reach these people right here.
0: Thank you so much Lori for joining us today. We know that you're gonna want to hear more information and so come back uh, for future episodes uh, as we talk about Thrive Collective and all the wonderful tools that we have uh, that help us to know why we want to do ministry and how we do ministry. I wanna just send a personal invitation to each one of you for our Inspire Women's Conference. Inspire Women's Conference is a day designed just for you, Arkansas Baptist women. Uh, It is powerful worship, it's dynamic teaching, it's meaningful times of connection. We're going to have a lot of friends, and this year we're talking about flourishing. Uh, We're going to talk about what it means to flourish in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We're going to focus on abiding in Jesus and His Word abiding in us, and how freedom is available to us in every single area of life. We're excited to welcome Dr. Tara Dew as our keynote speaker, and Corey and Stephanie Epps will be leading our time of worship. So Please consider this your personal invitation to join us for Inspire 2023. It's, it is happening on Saturday, September 23rd at First Baptist Church in Russellville. For more information and to register, log on to absc.org slash inspire. We'll see you soon.